We are going on tour. The Glamorous Trash Podcast and my book tour have collabed and we're coming to a city near you. Click the link in the show notes to to get all of the deets. We're coming to New York City. On June 4th, we are kicking off an event with Jon Stewart. No big deal. That's our very first show in New York City. Then we're coming to Washington, D.C., Nashville, Chicago, Santa Fe, Albuquerque, Seattle, Portland, and Los Angeles. So get your tickets now. We are doing three different events because, you know, I'm always doing the most. That's just on brand, right? First, there's a glamorous trash party. It's the podcast meets the book tour meets Coachella, a live show featuring podcast segments, book segments, a very special guest. And of course, there's a runway walk at the end for people to show off their fits because the dress code to every event is obviously glamorous trash. We are also doing a cookie country club. It's the anti-country club country club. And it's very dreamy. You get like a bunch of products. There's little events. And it's a more intimate event where you meet other cookies and listen to a book chat with what me and another special guest and then the final event the behind the bangs writing workshop i finally did it put it together put together this workshop because i wrote this book in many ways for younger me and younger me would not have gotten off her couch unless there was also a workshop being taught i wanted the gyms i wanted i wanted the knowledge i wanted the education that's what i would have wanted so i've decided i'm doing it and in the workshop is going to be the six writing gyms that took me forever to learn 15 years in my 15 year career as a tv writer and author and blah 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 all the other things i've written there are six things that i always use and all of those are in this workshop so if you have an interest in writing sign up all the ticket links are live today click the show notes click my instagram we are coming to a city near you and there's going to be some meet and greets i'll sign some copies of books we'll give out more books and i have uh, some pieces of merch that i'm taking on the road and i'm gonna give them out at the shows Welcome to Glamorous Trash. On this podcast, we recap and book club celebrity memoirs, pontificate about pop culture, and sometimes we cry. If you've ever referenced Mariah Carey in therapy, then this is probably the podcast for you. Glamorous Trash is all about going high and low at the same time. It's ordering ranch and a side of aioli. It's reading a People magazine at the library. It's a podcast that luxuriates in all the hot gossip celebrity memoirs while deconstructing the systems that allowed society to call these books trash in the first place. I'm your host, Chelsea Devantes. I'm a TV writer, comedian, and filmmaker, and sometimes I'm in stuff too. Today, we are book clubbing the memoir of Tippi Hedren. Perhaps you know her as the star of Alfred Hitchcock's film, The Birds, Marnie, her many other roles. Or maybe you know her as Melanie Griffith's mom and Dakota Johnson's grandma. That's right. So Tippi grew up in poverty in the Midwest and she became a star and spawned a multi-generational family of female movie stars. Now, this memoir is so kooky and has one of the wildest tales you will not even be able to imagine. It was published in 2016 when she was 86 years old. So let's dive in. Our guest today is the host of What Went Wrong, a podcast all about Hollywood's most notoriously disastrous movie productions. When she's not researching why James Cameron punched his safety driver in the face, she's working as a senior producer at Wondery. Please welcome Lizzie Bassett. Hello. Hi. Wow. Do I love your bio about James Cameron? You know, who is he not punching? That's what I've learned. <laughs> The cameras that he's building to go underwater for his next adventure. So 
Lizzie, I brought this book to you and, uh, and begged you to come onto this podcast because I love your podcast. And to give everyone listening a little backstory, um, one of my best friends, Ashley, told me about your podcast. She was like, it's about movie productions, but it's also done really well. And I started listening when I had the longest commute to our TV show production. Oh, so it was wow. like an hour and a half each way. And I was listening to, I've listened to every single episode of your podcast. Oh and God. the <laughs> episode you guys did on the movie Roar, which you used Tippi Hedren's memoir as research is what made me want to read her memoir. And then I was like, oh my God, maybe I can ask Lizzie to come on because you are now unfortunately an expert in the movie Roar and Tippi Hedren. <laughs> Well, I, it is unfortunate. Um, I've, I've watched it. I guess that makes me an expert in it because it it's quite a slog to get all the way through. Um, but also, I just have to say, I, the, the way that we started interacting was that you shouted out our podcast, which was so sweet. You did not need to do that. It was very nice. Um, and there was another added bonus of that, which is that it turns out your producer and I worked together like 14 years ago in Boston in college. And so I just, I got a lot of gifts out of this. I love that so much. And yeah, I had to shout your podcast out because I think you are a podcast producer. You have your own podcast. I have found that my taste was already niche in podcast. And now the little pinpoint of podcasts I love is so tiny. Oh my God. Um, and you. so when I find one I love, I just feel so happy. So thank you for making it. Um, I feel like the your episode on Roar is going to be a sister episode to, to what we're about to do. Whether y'all want to be one or not, you're a sister episode now. I was just re-listening to it, honestly, to try and like remember the way that I felt the first time that I read this and also watched Roar. And it's just like... I mean, I don't, I don't even know what to say. Like how, how many, it's just people being mauled for, for 90 minutes. That's the entire movie. Yeah. And you guys, it's also a lot of Tippy's book. Yes. So let's <laughs> begin. I loved her preface. I really, I found myself liking her. She's so mm -hmm. likable, I think as a human, but also it translates to on the page. And I loved her writing style. She wrote, I've been interviewed and quoted and written about more times than I can count since the early 1960s when I starred in The Birds and Marnie for Alfred Hitchcock, a man I look back on with admiration, gratitude, and utter disgust. Mm -hmm. Despite his efforts to thwart my career, I went on to act in more than 80 film and television roles. I've been a wife three times. I'm a mother and a grandmother. I've been a model and an animal rights activist and a humanitarian. I have a lot to say. <laughs> I said, this is perfect. <laughs> True. Seriously. Um, so she starts the book off kind of giving you the gist of the book. What she doesn't tell you is that I'm going to say over a third, I want to say maybe half of the book is going to be these specific years in her life making the movie Roar, mm -hmm. where she lived with big cats or lions, uh, real lions uh, in her backyard Yeah, for many, many years. And so... When you were reading this book for the podcast, did you enjoy all the parts about her life too? Or were you mostly focused on Roar? Or like, what did you think of the book as a whole? Well, so I picked up the book because we wanted to cover Roar because we'd gotten so many people saying like, you have to watch this movie. It's the craziest thing you'll ever see. Um, yeah. They were correct. It is. Um, and I picked it up and I first kind of like skipped forward to the section about Roar and it was so bonkers that then I went back and I read the whole first section about the birds. Um, but to answer your question, I liked all of it. I, I ended up yeah. um, 
I read it through for both those podcast episodes and then again for this. It's like a pretty quick, fun, easy read, and I did really enjoy it. There's some weird like 1950s, 60s isms, like her tennis club friends named uh, Potsy and Pussy Mouse. Um, (laughs) There were just things like that where I was like, okay. (laughs) Yeah, love. I mean, it really, she she paints a world for you. So let's start in her childhood, which one of my favorite things about this memoir, she skips it. Oh. Thank you. It. Don't need Thank it. Thank you, Tippy. <laughs> and it's so tough because how can you skip your childhood? But she did it. And basically right she's it. like <laughs> right past it. She grew up super poor in Minnesota. The anecdote about uh, how poor they were is that one Christmas she received the gift of a can of pineapples. That was her Christmas gifts that year. So I thought that painted it well. And then we go straight to spotted on the street as a model. The classic, Great. you there, <laughs> you should be a model, which... You know, it just really happens. It happens in so many of these memoirs where there you really are taken off the street to the point where like Minka Kelly was spotted on the street. So like if you're not spotted on the street, like maybe you, you, that's the sign. Do you know what I mean? Like don't try. Like you'll be found on the street or not. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Just walk around. I, I also do feel like though in, would it have been the 50s that she was spotted, I think? Yeah. Uh, there were like 10 people in in Hollywood at that time like it's yeah. you know I feel like they saw her and they were like you blonde lady you'll do yeah get on in here <laughs> but I also I I wasn't sure where she was but I feel like she's in Minnesota where they're like I think that's you right. there yeah yeah and You're she right. just starts like <laughs> it's like oh okay and she does Sunday fashion shows for like a department store then she follows a boyfriend to college I'm not, I, I am going to say she drops out of college, but it's more like her boyfriend like filled the paperwork out wrong yes. and they didn't actually live in Pasadena yeah. and then they just like have to leave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she was like, goodbye college. I didn't need <laughs> Bye, to. college. <laughs> I'm a model. And she doesn't because she goes to New York and she says, one day I called up Ford Modeling Agency and they made an appointment and I walked in and I was working within the hour. Yep. And I was like, it's at this point I started looking up every photo of Tippi Hedren because I was like... The, the visual beauty alone just has to be um, unreal. And it is. I mean, she's she's very, but it's like everything happens for her f- from like a, a like a wink and a whisper, like, oh, hey there. And they're like, get on in. A hundred percent. No, it's crazy. I mean, she is, she is beautiful. She's striking. She's also, I think like teeny tiny. I was looking at pictures <sighs> of her next to Dakota Johnson and Melanie Griffith and they look like giants. Like she is coming up to their hip. So well, I'm going to say that's also, I think, due to the fact that she's malnourished, but we'll get to that in the back of the book. But that, <laughs> that, that just, happens later. That, yeah, that's true. That happens later. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. So she becomes a model. And then an, my other favorite part of the book, she just skips the model years. She was yep. like, I was a very successful model and now I'm 30. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was great. I, I'm seeing my favorite part because it's just funny to skip certain giant portions of life. But sort of the next thing that happens is, and I love, she has great first sentences. She said, I've always enjoyed my own company and been perfectly content being alone. In fact, the only times I've ever been lonely were those times when I was with the wrong person. Mm. Um, which I said, yes. And she basically marries Peter Griffith mm-hmm. when he is 19 and she is 22. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, I want to cheer her on for being like, oh, you're older, but it's like, he's 19. Like this, that's, 
22 ain't much better, but... No. I mean, yeah, it, yeah. it doesn't go great. She doesn't have an amazing picker when it comes to husbands, which I think we learn over the course of this book. Uh, which We're going to learn it a few times. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. She's very she's very open about it. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And she had this great... Actually, she has this great line about this marriage where she says... We were too young to have a clue what we were getting into. That's for sure. I looked back on the wedding ceremony and that moment when we vowed to love, honor and cherish each other till death do us part and wondered if we would have said I do so quickly if those words had been changed to for the rest of your life. That sounds so much longer and has so and has so much more gravity than till death do us part. Don't you think Peter was 19 when we got married? I was 22 death at that age on such a pretty happy day. Never heard of it. I do. I love the way she talks about her marriages because she's with everyone. She's like, who thought this was a good idea? And it's like, you, Tippy, you, 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 you you were fully in it. But in hindsight, you're like, that was dumb, right? (laughs) Anyways, for 10 years, I made him breakfast. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So so they're married. They have daughter Melanie Griffith. And I always say female memoirs almost always have a psychic moment. And I have fallen off calling out my psychic moments, but this one has a great one, which is that she gets her tea leaves read and they tell her you're going to have a daughter of great fortune. That's right. And so when she has Melanie, she is her daughter of great fortune. And it's the dedication in the book to Melanie, my daughter of great fortune. It's so sweet, but also imagine growing up and they're like, Lizzie, you're the daughter of great fortune. Huh? <laughs> no. Huh, little nine-year-old? <laughs> um, I, I actually weirdly have a somewhat similar connection to this, which is that my dad, the only time he ever visited a fortune teller, he visited one when he was in his 20s, and they told him that he would meet his great-grandchildren. So now there's a lot of pressure, I feel, on me, because I'm like, well, that would involve me. Uh, I'm your only child. Me having... Uh, oh, you're the only I'm child. the only one. <laughs> So I, I feel a bit of that pressure where I'm like, oh, uh, well, uh, y- y- in theory, yes. In theory, you know, what were this fortune teller's credentials? Yeah. Do we know? Like, no, <laughs> no. I think it was some random person on the street who, like, you know, he walked in and and here we are. Yeah, I think you got to send him to another one and and slip him a twenty to be like, sorry, man, <laughs> Lizzie's got life to live. Um, and then. It's, I mean, not a lot goes into describing Peter, which is also pretty funny, but then an entire, I loved these two stories. She talked about, she has this little chunk about Marilyn Monroe on page 20, where she talks about, um, she went to someone's house and Marilyn Monroe happened to be staying there. And she said, hours passed before Marilyn emerged from her suite on the second floor. And then she was presumably coming down to join the group. And she writes, instead, she stopped on the landing where she sat down in the corner and stayed there. End of story. Seriously, she never said a word. She just sat there on that landing with a rather blank, unwelcoming look on her face. I never saw anyone approach her and I kind of lost track of her. Later, I noticed she just disappeared, perhaps back to her room or who knows where. Yeah, I that was such an interesting like snapshot of Marilyn Monroe and I I feel like it's one of the more like revealing ones in a, in a weird way. Yeah. Yeah, where like she's always written about as like there's always like sexiness written right. into her mystery of like so mysterious and sexy and even the way they write about like the drugs and the depression like it's always just like the sexiest depression in a slip. <laughs> and I feel like 
this was <laughs> you know what I mean like oh she was like so depressed and um yeah and, and obviously that's so like inaccurate to her story and this feels like the first maybe like female lens yeah I've read where she's looking at Marilyn being like this sad rude girl yeah who was lost and no one helped her including Tippy yeah who's <laughs> just like well she had nothing to say moving on um I like that she was like I'm not really sure you could say I met Marilyn Monroe like I I yeah. saw her on a landing and that was about I saw it. her sit on the stairs also like poor Marilyn like in this story you just want someone to walk up to her and talk to her I know just say hi or like are you okay yeah I know um yeah and then uh Oddly or almost perfectly, there's then a little story about Senator Kennedy. Yes. And uh, she's at a hotel uh, in France and there's Senator John <laughs> Kennedy. Uh, if anyone was wondering which Kennedy it was, it's John Kennedy, JFK. And um, she gets a call at her hotel and they say, Miss Hedren, Senator Kennedy is asked me to tell you he has a car waiting for you downstairs. I took the phone away from my ear and gaped at it for a second before replying, please tell Senator Kennedy I already have plans for the evening, but thank you anyway, which is like very nice and polite. And then she writes, I hung up and fumed. I was irate. <laughs> I was thoroughly disgusted with him. He was a representative of the United States government, for heaven's sake, a representative of our government. And he should have been in Italy taking care of his wife and her broken ankle, if you asked me. And I was offended if he thought even for a moment I might say yes. And then she's like, I knew it wasn't personal. It was strictly about genitalia. And the concierge was probably already on the phone with the next lucky candidate. Um, but emotionally, how dare he? Yeah. 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 I get it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. I also put him I, in his place. Yeah. I love that. She's like, she's like, you know, JFK tried it. And, and I he, said, no. <laughs> and I said, no. And also, you know, we knew, we knew JFK was philandering, but I think this is a specific, like, I think when you think of JFK, you think of Marilyn Monroe and you're like, oh, this love affair because she sang to him. Blah, yeah. blah. And it's like, no, he was putting it in anywhere. Anyone. Yes. Any. Yeah. And a very specific type. Mm -hmm. I mean, as a brunette, nothing makes me angrier than Jackie O being cheated on with multiple blondes. Sure. Like, my dude. <laughs> sure. Okay, so she's a model. She's married to Peter Griffith. Not much is to that marriage other than it wasn't a good match. Oh, this is the big thing. She makes more money than him. Yep. And of course, that makes him very sad. Yeah. And so what does he have to do to make himself feel better? He got to cheat. Well, he have to sleep with other ladies, yes. Yeah, I got to sleep yeah, with yeah. other ladies. To get my self-esteem back, because you're a bitch who pays for everything. <laughs> um, but no, truly, have you read that statistic? I know I've said it on this podcast before. And actually, let me see if I can Google oh, it. Oh, no. But it's like, it's percentage of men who cheat if their <laughs> female partner makes more money than, no. than them. No. Yeah. So um, of men who were completely financially dependent on their wives, 15% had an affair compared to 5% of women. 15? Uh, the number... <laughs> Yes. Like, also, this isn't a statistic for older people. This is millennial men more likely to stray when their wives earn the pay. Oh, we love the rhyme. Thank you, Fortune magazine. Unbearable. I'm not happy about this. <laughs> I did not know How that. How dare you rhyme delivering us these? It's tough. It's, it's funny because I think at one point as a joke, I put something on our fridge where I was like, you will always have a job. You'll never not be worried. I don't care what happens to your life, to my husband. Like, 
You better get you better get your ass somewhere. Yeah, better get your <laughs> ass. Because apparently, up and work. you working is is in conjunction with your ability to love. Like, what are you talking about? Great. Yeah, marriage vows yeah. are dependent on you also having a job. Apparently, fantastic. I should have put that in the vows. You will always be working. You will never. You will never know leisure. <laughs> we just got married last week, and I too should have put that in there. <laughs> you just got married last week. I that did. is so exciting. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Except now I'm like, oh god, oh god. <laughs> oh God, I better not be too successful. Um, yeah, well, it's exactly what happens with Tippy and Peter. And so she is divorced. She's a model. She's 31, which means what? Ancient. Ancient. She's done. Ancient. The, put her out. She's done. Those those modeling, put her out to pasture, <laughs> the modeling gigs, especially, you know, in that year. And so she's not, she doesn't have a lot of money. She's also uh, rented them a giant mansion. Yeah, I was going to say, she's also she's, terrible at spending the money. <laughs> yes, which she tells us she's like very bad. And then a paragraph where she says, things just fall into my lap and I'm very lucky, which I loved. Thank you. Name it. Mm-hmm. I love when people are like, yeah, she was just like, this was, yeah, things just happened for me. Well, that being said, was she lucky because of, I think, no, yeah. I say, I say she's going to, in hindsight, more control the better because she gets a call from her agent. Some very big, huge, mysterious director who refuses to be named saw her in a commercial and shouted, find the girl. And they did. The girl being Tippy. I have to call out as well that the commercial was for a meal replacement shake called Sego from a company called Pet Milk. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> like what was happening in the early also, 1960s? Like, I was gonna say 1960s, like right now, if we were on TikTok and they were like pet milk for dieting, I'd be like, oh, it's like cool Gen Z branding. But like, that is not what they were no. up to back then. It literally was pet milk and they relabeled it diet drink. <laughs> like, what is it? What is it? It's, it's definitely milk for your dog when he gets sick. And now women are drinking it to lose weight because in the 60s, anything was on the table. Great. Okay. Continue. Don't you feel like that in the 60s, women would be like, I will get electrocuted by eels yes. for a week. Yes, they'd uh, be like, is it a tapeworm in a jar? Fantastic. Give it to me. That sounds great. Yeah, exactly. Arsenic? Sounds good. Um, that was important. So thank you for it. Yeah, so <laughs> he sees her in this. No, it, well, I'm serious, though. He sees her in the Sago weight loss pet milk commercial and is like, find her. And so... She goes to this studio system and all these people are like, this director, again, no names, and we won't tell you. Even her own agent is like, nope, I've been, I've been told I can't tell you. And they say, but do you want to sign this studio contract to work for this director? Again, you don't know who it is, but we'll give you $500 a week. And she's divorced. She needs money. And she's like, this is awesome. And she signs this contract, binding her to the studio. They own her for three years. And then finds out it was Alfred Hitchcock who sent for her. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, have you ever heard another story of someone making them sign a studio contract blind after being scouted like that? No. So, I mean, I think I think they told her it was Hitchcock maybe before she like before she signed it, but she had not met him for sure. Yeah. I, I'm okay. not entirely clear on that. No, I think timeline. you might be right on that. Um, yeah. 
no, it's very weird. Very weird. I mean, this is also like the tail end of the studio system. So this whole idea of kind of owning actors, um, and if people aren't familiar with the studio system, it's basically the way that Hollywood worked from really the beginning, kind of all the way up through, I think, around the mid to late 60s. Um, don't quote me on that number, but it was uh, vertical integration. So they owned everything from like yeah. the writing, the actors, the production, and then all the way to the release. They owned the theaters as well. So it was this weird thing that doesn't really exist anymore where sh she signed this contract and they owned her in a way that you yeah. cannot thankfully do anymore. You can't own actors anymore, but you can own other talent. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but it's 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 not as um it's usually a very good thing. It's not like a punishing like Yeah, yeah. Uh uh but yes, no that that yeah, it is it's wild how it happened. It is one of those things where it's like she didn't get a lawyer to look at it. Nope. She didn't get a friend to look at it. No. She didn't sit with it. <laughs> she didn't take it home in the room, signs it. And so she then meets Alfred Hitchcock and he, what he does to her is monstrous. Yes. And I'm really afraid that as much as she wrote about it and it's clear it's monstrous that she wrote about it with too light of a touch. Hmm. Because I don't fully trust Tippy as our narrator because she really forgives a lot of things. That's true. But let's go through some of the things she did mention. So he calls her the girl. Mm -hmm. He will sometimes never call her by her name. He will tell male co-stars like, don't touch the girl, get away from the girl. Right before she starts filming, he sends a lawyer to meet with her and is like, we have found out you're a prostitute. Yeah. And they use the word prostitute, which is why I'm using it. And um, she's like, I'm not though. And they're like, okay. <laughs> but it's all about like threatening her and like that's like one of the worst things you could say to like a model you know of like it's you weren't really a model you were right a sex you worker. were a call, a call girl or something in new york yeah, um, yeah it's very weird he does all of these weird little sort of boundary tests and like obviously that is crossing a boundary but it's also like you can tell that he's like he's poking he's pushing. yes yes he's trying to see how, what he can get away how with. much will she take yes. yes and he does it little by little he has mm -hmm. this screen test Ooh. she has to do this screen test where she has to play the female leads in his previous movies mm -hmm. that's a nightmare and he spends the equivalent to two hundred thousand dollars today yep. just to have her on the screen then he'll like meet with her for dinner and tell her his like fantasy of doing another screen test where she like drinks a martini and, and he asks her naughty questions and then she drinks another and, and how he's gonna frame her and it's like getting really weird um and then he gives her the lead role in The Birds and she's a model. She's never acted. She's an unknown and she's now the lead in his film. So she feels very grateful to him. And I think he very purposefully wanted an actress who would. 100%. He didn't want someone who had power. Yeah. yeah. Also, The Birds is his follow up to Psycho. So like this is <laughs> like the peak of Hitchcock. Like this would be crazy. Yeah. yeah. And he's, you know, he, oh, he's just getting off on it so much to the point that the next so much happens that it would it would take hours but the next huge thing that happens is that he's with her in a limo mm -hmm. and they pull up in front of a bunch of people so there's a there's a whole audience of people people they work with he, it's the crew people yeah it's the crew it yeah and he assaults her he like throws himself on her and is trying to kiss her and make out with her and touch her with everyone watching mm -hmm. i think so that she knows 
no one, no one will help you. Yeah. Ooh, that's so creepy. You're right. Because then she pushes him off and she leaves. That is what that is. I mean, I, I, you know, when we talked about this in the episode on the birds, my co-host pointed out that it's also kind of like that middle school thing of like, you know, a boy grabbing a girl's hand as you're rounding a corner to show everybody like, oh, it's my girlfriend. So like there is that possessive thing, but you are totally right. It was also to show that none of these people are going to step in and they didn't. Yeah. And they didn't. And I guess, small fact, he's married. Oh, yes, he is married. (laughs) The man be real married. And when he spotted Tippy, as the story goes, he and his wife Alma were watching the commercial. Mm -hmm. And like, and she has dinner with Alma. Like, he's not, not that it would be fully better if he was single, but it's just an added wild layer of like. And Alma knows. Like, that's, that was maybe the biggest and craziest reveal in this to me was that she was well aware of what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm going to pin that because a few people, women know, yes. not, which is, it's on everyone, but it's an interesting thing that happens. And she wrote this paragraph that I really loved. She said, she's talking about um, talking to her daughter, Melanie. I couldn't tell her that I'd started seeing Hitchcock in the back of his limo driving past our house. I couldn't tell her that I'd found out he was occasionally having me followed and that he'd even had my handwriting analyzed. I couldn't tell her that one day in a relatively private corner of the soundstage away from the set while we were shooting, he'd asked me to touch him and I'd resisted the temptation to slap him and just turned and walked away. In fact, I couldn't tell anyone. It was the early 1960s. Sexual harassment and stalking were terms that didn't exist back then. There wasn't the word for stalking. I mean, if that is not a history lesson. Besides, he was Alfred Hitchcock, one of Universal's superstars, and I was just a lucky little blonde model he'd rescued from relative obscurity. Which one of us was more valuable to the studio, him or me? Yeah. I, it's, it is crazy. Like the things that she rattles off that he was doing because he was not hiding this. There's so many stories she no. tells in this about how he would just stare at her across the set. Like if he's talking. He had a mask of her face oh made. Oh my God. Yes. He had a and life And used mask. production to make it. Yes. And they, production goes and makes it. And she's like, what's this for? And they're like, for his personal collection. Oh my God. What is he doing with it? Is he just we wearing it? We know what it? he's doing with it. He's not wearing oh, it. Oh no. Oh no. See, that mask is up to some stuff in Alfred's. Yeah. I'm going to say dungeon um what a monster yeah he is he really is and that that like this was shocking um I knew a little bit of this I did not know the full extent of it there's so many weird little control things that like him sending her bread and potatoes with notes that say eat me on them and like she's a very thin model that's a that you know you know also, that's a if weird... she did gain weight a thousand lawyers would be exactly. at her door to be like per your contract here's some pet you're milk. fired <laughs> yeah here's some pet... <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna get you back on the sega um yeah absolutely like you she can't that isn't that's absolutely nuts no um no also i'm sorry this is this is the this is the thing i cannot get past it, i i know me. there's so many worse things that he does in this but when he tells her about how he was directing a scene and I think to catch a thief with Cary Grant and Grace Kelly and then he tells her that watching the two of them together gave him a boner I was like what yeah. is happening what is That's so, this it, I think somehow that one was like on the lowest I don't know why <laughs> I, know, but I don't know what my like... scale is from like that to mask to potatoes <laughs> like I don't know where it falls but Uh, Yeah, yeah, he definitely was. But this is also what I mean with like, 
I can't like, I mean, I do trust Tippy. I just think it was worse than what she said because she says like, oh, he, yeah. he told me he got a boner when he was doing the scene. But like, there's a big difference between like, you know, when I directed that, I got a big old, big old hard on with my wee wee and like a very, a much more sinister, like I'm sexually getting off as I'm telling you about my sexual fantasy, that like, is which true. is what I think it was. Yes. Yeah. Had to yeah. be. Yeah. Again, so you guys covered the birds. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to say, go over go over to that ep if you want to hear the, the whole story. But he then basically tries to physically and mentally break her mm-hmm. in how he films the birds. Like in one scene where he traps her in a bedroom for five days for one minute of footage and says the mechanical birds aren't working, so we're going to use live ones. And they fly in birds that have been trained to peck at a human's flesh, Mm -hmm. and they fly at her for five days straight. And she tells herself, I won't let him break me. I won't let him break me. And she makes it through shooting. And then she has a physical and mental breakdown where she is just nearly comatose for seven days. Yeah. Yeah, that whole story was so fascinating also because, again, it involves people knowing what was going on. When she said, you know, they'd told her all along it was to be mechanical birds, she gets on the set and there's a full cage built around the set. You can't do that in the last minute if the birds aren't working. They'd planned it the whole time. Um, yeah, and which means like a dude was building yes. the cage, fully knowing. Everyone knew, everyone watched it, and it really is that generational thing where strength in that time was not saying no and walking away and making noise. Strength was enduring it. Yeah. And, and so that's what she's doing. She's like, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to let him break me. I'm going to make it through. And when she ends the movie, she's on contract to do another one. Yeah. So she can't stop. And this is where I want to call out, not only his wife Alma knowing, but there's these pages where, Alma comes up to her and says, she was a little awkward and reluctant. And all she said was, I'm so sorry you have to go through this. Alma, you could stop it. I replied, you're the only one who could. She just turned and walked away. He also has a secretary named Peggy Mm -hmm. who is sent to convince her to have just a drink with him, meet with him just this one time. And Peggy has to like beg because whatever he's doing to Peggy is now making her do it to uh, tippy because this is nexium the 1960s yeah, hollywood seriously. edition where <laughs> you have to pyramid scheme your women into your manipulation cult and then the third one is that she said i had a similar hollow feeling when marnie writer jay press and alan and i were headed somewhere in the back of the limo and out of nowhere she quietly asked can't you love him just a little yeah that's the one that's the one that i was just like man i mean uh, i hope she regrets that you just have to wonder, like, what was he doing to her yeah. to get her to ask? But also that's that like internalized misogyny where she was probably or she was like, hey, when men do this to me, I give them some love and it makes it easier. Like, why don't you do that for all of us? That's like, true. A little trick. <laughs> Try it. You'll see. A um, little hack. <laughs> a life hack. We also know that he holds their careers over their heads as well. And the control that he yeah. was able to exert was, you know all powerful so who knows what he was asking of those women yeah and here's what's so bad about this when tippy wrote that it's the 1960s writer jay Preston assumed it was a man it turned out to be a woman yes. and i had a little bit of like oh a lady writer as she is <laughs> <laughs> oh, good ruining tippy's life um yeah <laughs> she's actually a, a very good writer I, i'm pretty sure she wrote the prime of miss jean brody which is an early oh. maggie smith movie i think that's right okay yeah 
yeah, I'm, I'm new to her career. And then um, again, another moment where I think, you know, obviously she's not telling us everything because she writes, I've never gone into detail about this and I never will. I'll simply say, this is as they're filming Mar- Marnie, that he suddenly grabbed me and put his hands on me. It was sexual, is perverse, and it was ugly. And I couldn't have been more shocked and repulsed. The harder I fought him, the more aggressive he became. Then he started adding threats as if he could do anything to me that was worse than what he was trying to do at that moment. He would scrap the whole project. I didn't care, I told him. Let me out of my contract. He said, you have a young daughter and elderly parents to support. I said, no one who loves me would want me to be this unhappy for any amount of money. Then he looks directly into my eyes and says, I'll ruin your career. I finally managed to push him off me once and for all and look directly back at him. Do what you have to do, I said. And I stormed out and slammed the door behind me. And then they tell her she's not invited to the Marnie rap party <laughs> where, she, you know, she plays Marnie, but okay. Yeah. Um, because he attempted to rape her and didn't succeed. Yeah. Cool. That's great which is also like i'm sorry that's the non-detailed version i know i know so like what what happened i mean i awful also he was big Uh, like he was a big man oh yeah very physically large and yeah it's 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 heartbreaking and she i think this is where i i'm so this was my note and how this story ends where basically She's like, despite Hitchcock trying to lobby against me, Universal had every intention to submit me for an Oscar. Mm. And then he blocked it. Yeah. She said, I was never submitted, never considered. And then he holds her under contract. So when she's a star and everyone offers her roles, he just says she can't because she's under contract, but doesn't give her anything else. And she says, in many ways, he succeeded in ruining my career. She said... I've made it my mission ever since to see to it that while Hitchcock may have ruined my career, I never gave him the power to ruin my life. Yeah. And I said, oh my God, I love that so much. And then a paragraph later, it surprised everyone that I went to Hitchcock's funeral in Beverly Hills. I even had a floral arrangement designed in the shape of the iconic Hitchcock profile. I was just there to honor his genius as a filmmaker and his contributions to the industry. I was there to honor him personally as an unparalleled teacher and star maker who once believed in a former model who never acted a day in her life. I'd already healed and moved on by the time Hitchcock died, far past anything I'd ever imagined for myself. So in the end, I was there to say goodbye and thank you, Hitch. And my book note is, no, I know, I know. Maybe? It's really weird. Am I? She has another line that I'm like, ooh, end it there, Tippy, where she said, I never forgot for one moment that it was all happening because of Alfred Hitchcock, and I never forgot for one moment that I'd earned it. I'm like, that is so mm. good. That is because, yeah. like, it's a way of acknowledging that, yes, sure, he gave you all of this. However, she deserved what she... You paid. You paid, you paid 10 times over. Yes. Yeah. But, I mean, I... It's this, it's this weird thing where, like, I guess to have the inner piece to show up to a funeral with a floral <sighs> arrangement in the profile of your long-term abuser who ruined your life, I'm like, is that uh, peak confidence or is that, like... I don't think so. Because it feels like it's not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where it's like, you're saying it's healing, but I don't think so. I think we see other indications throughout her life in the book that it was not a healed wound, un- understandably. Um, but yeah. this is this is lasting trauma that unfortunately results in so many lions. <laughs> Which a great, beautiful segue because 
Tippy needed a husband shield to use against Hitchcock. Boy, did she and find she, one. Wow, yeah. She just needed a shield and she marries him while Marty is going on thinking like Hitchcock will leave me alone if there's just a, a man standing by me. And he is not just a shield. He is, of course, a husbander. He is her <laughs> agent and manager and becomes her husbander. And real estate agent. He's oh, yeah, her real estate agent. I believe he's, I wrote down man of many slash no talents. Yes. yes. <laughs> he, he does a lot of things, but I think all None of, of them, them well. poorly. Yeah. None of them well. And she said, wanting to escape someone you don't want to deal with is a really lame reason to get married. I was putting a, ba- a, a barrier between Hitchcock and me. I wasn't in love with Noel Marshall, but I'm not sure I admitted that to myself when I said yes to marrying him. It's like, of course not. Yeah. And you shared this on your podcast episode and I gasped. So let's share it here where she's like, he was so spontaneous. Um, I had this really big, beautiful house and he mentioned maybe we could get married at the house. And I said, well, it's not big enough. And so we picked up a sledgehammer and just broke, just literally broke the wall on the stairs in that moment. Yeah. And um, yeah, they're like sitting outside and, and he's like, what if we do the wedding here? And she's like, I'm not sure it's big enough. And cut to, he's literally already running towards her with a sledgehammer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I also love that when she she opens this chapter saying that like, oh, by the way, I have a new husband. And then she says, I I know. What? Who? (laughs) Why? Seriously. Let me tell you. And you're like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so this husband goes hand in hand with all the lions. Okay, we're going to take a quick break right now and we'll be right back. Sibling fights are unavoidable, but what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother. But that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondery's podcast, Disintel, is hosted by comedians Sidney Battle and Matt Balasai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier? Follow Disintel on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. I started this podcast because I have been obsessed with memoirs my entire life, and I can't believe it, but I got to write my own, and it comes out on June 4th, and you can order it right now. The book, you know, I was asked to describe it, and I said, it is an absolutely harrowing, traumatic memoir, but funny. So if that sounds good to you, order it. Let me give you some topics that are in this memoir. A female best friendship breakup how I got my break into Hollywood, when I found out my dad was not my real dad, the time I dated a magician. Are those last two related? Who's to say? Read the book. Growing up in Utah, growing up around cults, how I got into therapy. Listen, I could keep going. Each chapter title is a different woman's name in my life. Some are heroes, some are motherfucking villains. But you know what? A villain and a hero, what are both of those things? A leading role. And we do love women in our leading roles. So pre-order the book. It matters a lot. I linked everywhere that you can buy it in the show notes, but you know, go anywhere. Also, 
I am reading the audiobook personally. So I'm personally narrating it. So if you like this podcast, get my longest podcast ever. And the audiobook is also available for pre-sale everywhere you get audiobooks. And thank you so much for listening to this podcast. You are the reason I got to write a memoir. So thank you so, so much. Okay, welcome back. Let's continue the conversation. And long story short, they come into contact with some some big cats right. on a you know on a safari, and and she's like, I love those cats. And <laughs> Noelle is like, you know, it would be cool, a movie with a bunch of real lions in them. Like, when is that done before? And who does he get to write the script? But himself, titled Lions, Lions, and More Lions. Yes, yes, it's <laughs> and, off to a good start. And I'll you know, Tippy says it best herself, so I'll read it. In order to do the movie, she writes, we're going to have to create a pride of our own. 50 homegrown lions, because we'd said the word 50 so many times that this figure had become non-negotiable, etched in stone. As for how we were going to keep or pay for that many big cats, not to mention where, we put those concerns in the deal with it later pile. Single-mindedness, stubbornness, headstrong, determination, sheer insanity? We didn't know, and we didn't stop to analyze it. Mass hysteria? I mean, like, what? You should stop to analyze it. You should stop. Especially because she talks about them talking to all of these animal trainers, and, you know, Noel Marshall's whole idea is like, uh, oh, if one lion makes a hit movie, then 50 lions will make us so much money. He's doing, like, some weird lion math uh, on the side, and... And then they talk to all these trainers, and these trainers are like, no, you cannot put that many animals together. Also, not in your yard. No. And not in a movie. You can't film with 50 wandering lions. Well, you can't film with one. Chelsea, you can, because they, You're right. they did it. <laughs> because they did. You're right. You're right. They absolutely did. And she wrote, she wrote, I didn't learn until many years later how naive and stupid we were. But a page later is like experts told us no. Trainers told us no. They told, Vets them no. told us no. Also, like you're you, you're all getting scalped and, and mauled. Like, I, I think they you know, you knew yeah, you knew. Yeah. Well, you knew day one and you knew day one thousand and seven. Oh, my God. She also at this time took these very famous pictures, I believe, in Time magazine. Life magazine, I think. Life magazine. Okay. Yes, that sounds right. And where she and the family are just posing with their cute pet lion. There's there's the two pictures that I remember are she is like, she's like spitting water into the lion's mouth at the pool. And then there's a picture of Melanie Griffith laying in bed with the lion just laying next to her. Like, they yeah, just Melanie, together. a child, a child, she a child. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, Tippy apologizes for it in the book, but I'm still going to say like, this is just white woman fuckery on high. This is that meme, you know, where, where it's like what white people have to do to feel things, you know, and it shows them like eating dinner off of a cliff. And you're like, don't do that. Um, And, and really a really terrifying and sad time in history where tons of people were getting like lions from department stores in London and like, these animals who really need so much and people are bringing in the, them into their houses, which is like a form of animal abuse. That, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, really sad. And also it's just, I'm, I mean, it's most, most of the book is now going to be lions. So we're going to go high level because 
uh, again, you can hear all about Roar on their podcast, but one of the craziest facts is that the way they pay for all the lions is that Noel is Noel. <laughs> Noel. <laughs> we don't need to get his name right. <laughs> you know what? I'm, I'm going Noel. Noel was like somehow still an agent and Tippy told him to sign the author of The Exorcist. She's like, this book is incredible. It's going to make a lot of money. So he does. He signs Bill Blatty. And then when The Exorcist became a movie, Noel would be the executive <laughs> producer and be guaranteed 15% of the profits. And so as it's becoming a movie, they're like, okay, let's buy a million lions because we're going to be so rich. And Lizzie, do you want to tell us what happens with all that exorcist money? Uh, yes. This was my, maybe my favorite moment of the whole book, which is that Noel has gotten this contract together, but it turns out uh, William Peter Blatty never signed it. So while having verbally agreed to it, he then... And he initialed, he initialed in the yeah, corner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like the tiniest little exorcist initials. Um, <laughs> so they're banking on the exorcist money. And then it turns out that they don't get it. I They do eventually get it through like a lawsuit, but I don't think they get all of it. And it certainly does no. not come when they need it to fill the mouths of the now, you know, hundreds of lions and other animals that they have acquired. Yeah, it's so sad when you're like, no, the exorcist money. But, you know, <laughs> Tippy is like, yeah, how are we going to feed my beautiful, beloved lions? And she loves these animals. Yes. I'm going to say these animals are the true love of her life. And then they, you know, they are running out of backyard space for their wild animals. Sure. And they're escaping into like Beverly Hills and things, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And they're kind, you know, constantly going to the hospital as, you know. Of course. She says, not our fault. We antagonized one of the lion and, you know, his claw broke my eye skin. <laughs> And so they have to get more lion space. Who do they go to? Steve Martin. Steve Martin. What? But not that one. <laughs> A different one. But also, like, she doesn't tell you that. No. She just says, and we put in an emergency call to Steve Martin in Soledad Canyon. And it's like, you're never, you're not going to say, okay, the, the book editor is not going to say this isn't that Steve Martin? I mean, it can't, it can't be. Okay. So now we're going to talk about the movie Roar. However, I thought that Lizzie's podcast, What Went Wrong, described the filming of this movie so well with such expertise that we're going to play a clip of it from their podcast episode in this one so you can hear about the filming of this movie and then we'll come back to the book. After witnessing a particularly gnarly fight between lions Casey and Tongaru, Melanie Griffith sat her mom down and said she did not want to leave this movie with half a face. Very prescient, given what's to come. She backed out before any of her scenes were shot. They replaced her with her friend Patsy Ned. You might notice, however, that Melanie is in the movie. That's yeah. because around Christmas, Noel convinced her to come back to set. They reshot most of Patsy's scenes, although there are still some shots where you can tell that it's not Melanie Griffith. Now, Noel had a habit of asking people to do scenes they were uncomfortable with, um, including the one where a leopard licks honey off of Tippy Hedren's face, which is bonkers. The safe word on set was apparently Noel. Not that it meant much, as he had a habit of ignoring it. You can actually hear Melanie Griffith saying, no, no, Noel, at around an hour and five minutes in, when the lion is starting to put her head in its mouth. Uh, but he does not stop rolling. The scene keeps going. That's pretty tough to watch when you realize what you're watching. I mean, that's how I felt about a lot of these scenes was like, why, how are they not calling cut? Because he is the one who is in charge of that. And he 
would put anyone's safety after getting what he thought was going to make him millions of dollars. Crazy. So let's get into the injuries. Out of 140 cast members, at least 70 were injured on this film, although John Marshall estimates it's closer to 100. Let's start with Noel Marshall's injuries. He was bitten through the hand by a lion multiple times. One is actually on camera early in the movie. This is where you reference this, but he's amongst a bunch of lions and he lifts his hand up and it's covered yeah, in blood. It's covered in blood. And it's like just clearly real blood. He's bitten through the leg by a lion who was allegedly curious about the anti-reflection makeup they'd put on his very, very pale legs. He got blood poisoning after his face and chest were injured, puncture wounds, and he developed gangrene and was bitten over 11 times total. Jesus. I would like to preface this by saying his injuries are by far not the worst. Oh, God. Tippy Hedren. She was picked up and crushed by Timbo the elephant, fracturing her ankle between its tusk and trunk. She said it wasn't Timbo's fault as he was trying to stop her from falling, but Timbo allegedly also tossed his trainer into the air and broke her shoulder, so I'm going to go with Timbo was pissed. (laughs) She was scratched on the arm by a leopard. She was bitten on the chest by a cougar. Here we're going to get into some of the worst ones. Melanie Griffith, despite saying she didn't want to leave the movie with half a face almost did leave the movie with half a face. She was attacked in the head by a lioness, resulting in 50 stitches. They thought she was going to lose an eye and be permanently disfigured. Remember, she's around 19 at this point with a burgeoning acting career. (sighs) Thanks to reconstructive surgery, she was okay. But it's a miracle her face was not horrifically fucked up after this. Mm -hmm. She did not quit, by the way. She came back after that, which is insane. John Marshall was bitten on the back of the head by a lion, requiring 55 stitches. Jerry Marshall was bitten in the thigh by a lion while showing his new girlfriend around the compound. And fun fact, taking Jerry to the hospital is when Tippy discovered she had gangrene from her leg being crushed by Timbo. She had to have a skin graft and is lucky she didn't lose the leg completely. Now, the most upsetting injuries, so buckle up, belong to, first and foremost, Jan DeBont, the cinematographer. Okay. In order to capture the shot where the family is escaping in the rowboat, he wanted to be at eye level with the water so that he could capture the cats jumping over him. Okay. So they built a pit to dig him down lower so he could be at eye level, which they would cover with a tarp and some greenery. And Noel insisted that they wear football helmets since the cats would be going directly over them. However, at the last second, Jan realized he couldn't get his eye right up to the camera with the football helmet on. So he took it off. Along came cherries, who apparently loved playing with round objects, such as balls, (laughs) bowling balls, basketballs. She also, when she was little, apparently really liked biting toes in the bed. Our cat does that. Anyway, cherries proceeded to rip Jan's scalp off from the nape of his neck to his forehead. She completely scalped him. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. He received 220 stitches and came back to work oh so they literally sewed the top of his head back on yep and he came back to work came back to work his assistant however did not uh apparently it was his first day on set and he turned to tippy hedron and said please take my pay buy that poor son of a bitch some flowers i have to quit (laughs) oh my god i mean totally unsurprised yeah jesus 
<laughs> Probably the most horrific attack of the entire shoot, however, belongs... That wasn't the worst one? That was not the worst one. Ugh. Belongs to the assistant director, Doran Cowper, who accidentally and unintentionally signaled Tongaru to attack, causing it to bite him in the face, throat, chest, and thigh, almost severing his jugular and almost completely severing his ear. He ended up needing 4.5 hours of surgery uh, and is extremely lucky to be alive. (sighs) After this one, more than 20 crew members said, nope, and quit. I can't believe it wasn't 100% of the crew. Yeah. Okay, that was just a clip of What Went Wrong's podcast episode, Roar. You can hear the whole thing on Lizzie and Chris's podcast. But let's get back into the book. Because literally, mid-Lion chapter, Tippy says, all right, let's talk about Melanie and Don Johnson. And (laughs) you're like, whoa, we were just talking about lions. And we'll go back to talking about lions. And she says, I'd never encouraged Melanie to become an actress. Blah, 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 blah. Um, And then she said, I didn't think a thing about it when Melanie went with a girlfriend to an interview for work as an extra when she was around 12. So I was really unprepared when Melanie called beside herself with excitement and announced, Mom, I have an acting job. I'm like, I'm sorry. You like, Tippy, you of all people know what an audition is like, what can happen. Well, but she wants it, you know, she's a free spirit. She wants to try her head. and, and, you know, to Tippy's credit, she said, one of the things I regret is treating Melanie like she was an adult her, yeah. when she was a child. So I'm glad she acknowledges that. But then she says, Melanie was 14 when we began shooting the Harad experiment. Noel, I'm sorry, I'm keeping it. Noel Noel, Stick the film's it. producer, which also the film's producer, oh my God, suggested one day that we hire her as an extra. Sure, why not? I said, it changed everything. As I look back on it, the subject matter of the film is nothing short of ironic. The script was based on a novel of the same name, da, 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 where it's, a, it's about a fictional school where students were taught sexuality and encouraged to experiment with their fellow students. It was a commentary on the sexual revolution. And then she says, Don Johnson played one of our more, let's say, experimental students. Oh, God. What I didn't realize was that this apparently wasn't just the case for the camera. I was oblivious and or Don and Melanie were very discreet. When Melanie announced they'd fallen in love, you could literally have knocked me over with a feather. Don was eight years older than Melanie. So she is 14 in in the (sighs) sexual movie encouraging students to have sex with each other. And he's the student. And she doesn't And he's in his 20s. Yes. Yeah. So he's in his... I mean, this is full-on statutory rape. Oh, God. Yeah. I I missed the context of how they... Of the the movie. That's just an added little little bonus there. Um, Maybe I was distracted by Tippy saying, sometimes I wonder if I paid too much attention to the big cats instead of my daughter. And it's like, yes! Yes, she's dating a 22-year-old man. Oh, I think in court we could, we could, that's a true accusation yes. you have made, Tippy. <laughs> like, I'm going to read some highlights of these pages, which are really, really tough. She said, he'd already been through two brief marriages and he terrified me. He was handsome. His acting career was taking off. He was wild as a deer. 
If I tried to forbid her from seeing him or tried to talk her out of him, it would have only have intensified her feelings for him and alienated her from me. And above all, I didn't want to lose her. I hate admitting this, but it's true. As horrified and panic stricken as I was, I had no idea what to do. Not when she fell in love with him and not when she moved in with him Mm -hmm. at the age of 15. I did have a serious talk with Dawn, needless to say. Oh my God. He was old enough to know better, but too young and arrogant to be interested in what his beautiful new girlfriend's mom thought of him. Then she says the cat line. Then later, if I tried to have Don prosecuted for statutory rape, I'm convinced to this day that my daughter would never have spoken to me again. And I was like, you know, nice try. Oh my God. Nice try, ma'am. Yeah. But absolutely not. That is what you could have done. Yeah. She's, and she just, she just does nothing because she says Melanie is headstrong. And it reminded me of, we read Angela Lansbury's, um, I'm not going to say book, but I'm going to say diet magazine oh. uh, in the shape of a book on this podcast. And in it, I found out from further research that uh, Angela Lansbury's uh, daughter and son got involved with Charles Manson, Charles Manson in uh, Los Angeles. And they get really addicted to drugs. And when she finds out, she picks them up and moves them to Ireland where they are hundreds of miles away from the nearest bread shop. Oh my God, go Angela. Yeah. And me and my husband then had this, like, we still have this debate where we talk to each other of like, hypothetically, if we have kids one day, something horrible happens to a kid. Like they start dating Don Johnson, let's say, when they're 14 and, and wants to move in with them. And like, what would we do? And I am full Angela. I'm like, we pick up, we, we go to the Sahara and that's it. That's it. Because I can't, I just can't believe she did nothing and thinks it was the best decision to not even try. Well, she didn't do nothing. She did instead offer half of her face to the lions. So that's a, that's your other option. Yeah. Or stay and do the movie and yeah. Be eaten by lions or go live with Dawn. This was wild. I mean, it really, it makes me wonder what this was like from Melanie's perspective, because like as much as Tippy sort of breezes through this, none of this is normal behavior. Um, and uh, like understandably, because this yeah. seems like a kind of traumatic upbringing for Melanie. And I think to get to the point when you are 14 or 15 and 12 and making these decisions, this isn't out of the blue. Like no. your whole childhood has been, yeah. And then she writes, of course, I'm well aware of the substance abuse problems Melanie has struggled with, but that's a subject for her memoir, not mine. Which I do think is half like, yes, absolutely. Um, that's Melanie's story to tell. However, it's also already been told in the press. Yeah. So you could certainly share your relationship um, as a mother to it. Mm-hmm. I also, have you ever read um, Bonfire of the Vanities? I haven't, but I have watched the really bad the movie adaptation. The book written about the filming is was something told uh, a teacher told me to read when I was in college. And it's like, because it's just one of the best ways to learn about film production. And in that book, Melanie Griffith is the star. And it is the reporter writing. But I remember writing the, they wrote this scene of how Melanie is on set and her mom comes and she just wants her approval so badly. And she wants Aww. to know that she looks beautiful and she's living up to the movie star her mom was. Oh, and um, so, so I brought that to my reading of this book and Melanie and Don get married in Vegas. They, the marriage is annulled after a few months. She says, thank God Melanie and I were never estranged. She said there was an underlying distance between us for a while that neither of us knew how to talk about or mend. But 
We got through it and we've been close ever since, probably more like best friends than mother and daughter. Yeah. And I said, no, ma'am. Yeah. That's your daughter thing. is not your best friend. I know. She's prioritizing. It's like she's so afraid of her daughter not liking her that she is at times unwilling to protect her. And it really is. It's It was hard. It was hard to read this. Yeah. I also think she uses Melanie to be her mom. Yeah. Like she's, you know what I mean? Like Tippy wasn't being a mom to her, yeah. you know, and, and when she's treating Melanie like an adult, well then worst ending ever. She says, as for Don to his credit, I said, no, no, no. <laughs> he sat me down many years after this nightmarish time and said with utter sincerity, I'm sorry. I hurt you. You tippy. Excuse me. He, you're sorry. He hurt you. This man. This man statutory raped your daughter. Yeah. Yeah. And she marries him again later. And that's when she has Dakota Johnson, right? It's like. Yes. That was the biggest surprise that she gets married, has a child and then gets back together with him. Yeah. That she only has one child with him. It's Dakota. And I think it's, it's that second time. Like they get. It is that second time. They do it again. I just. Yeah. Because she was 14. She was indoctrinated into this man. That is so weird. Like, I think I maybe like glazed over some of this because it is so hard to process. Well, that you had all the lions to discuss. I, I did. <laughs> there was a lot of them. I know there's so many of them, but also like your 15 year old is moving in with at that point, a 23 year old. That's crazy. That is crazier yeah. than all of the lions biting Tippy Hedren's head. And there were several. Yes, but clearly, like, as with the birds, as with the lions, Tippy's whole thing is put yourself in danger and stay there. Yes. It's, you know, that's, she's just done it so many times. And um, eventually, the film Roar is made, which I can't bring myself to even watch five minutes of. You um, don't need to. You don't need to. Yeah. And she said... It cost $17 million to make, and it made $2 million. Oopsies. <laughs> Whoopsie daisy. And it, how many years did it take? It's like It takes eight? like, yeah, it's a crazy amount to actually film it. And then it's like way more when they're like building up their lion brood. It's something crazy, uh, like eight, 10, like years total. It's years yeah. and years and years. Yeah. And they just have to get through it. And do they? That, or could they have stopped do, yeah, at any they time? They could have stopped at any moment. And they didn't have to do the movie to have all the the big cats. To be clear, and, no one's asking for it. <laughs> and people are actually asking you to stop. Yes. <laughs> they, multiple people are saying, please don't do this. And this is, I mean, it's not right after, but it's close enough for me where she says, in 1982, I fainted. And after that, I could no longer taste or smell and still cannot. Yeah. And I can barely eat food because I can't taste or smell and haven't been. And she says, no one knows why. And I said, I think I do. <laughs> you bonked your head real hard. And also a lion bit it real bad on the back. Like Tippy's head takes a beating in this book. She is in the hospital so many times yeah. from these animals. You, she was in the hospital from the birds. Like Tippy. <laughs> you don't have good luck with these animals. Also, I never thought I would learn about the different types of gangrene from Tippy Hedren's memoir, but here we are. Yeah. Like when she's you like, want black and not green. Yes. <laughs> I got the good kind. 
oh, yay. <laughs> um, but yeah, she's like, yeah, I don't know why I can't taste or smell. And I, this is where I'm like, I was raised very new age. And I'm like, I think your body's telling you something. Um, and now I'm full, fully new age again as I diagnose Tippy in this book that the call is coming from inside the house. Um, and of course, as soon as the movie is out, she divorces Noelle Noel and is like, doing that movie was the only thing that kept us together. And when it was done, I divorced him on my birthday. Um, Good for you, Tippy. Thank God. Cause he was bad on that too. He was like kind of gaslighting her in terms oh, yeah. of like, he put her in danger, yes. he put everyone in danger. He put, he's the one who convinced Melanie to come back onto uh-huh. the film behind her back. I, it's really, really bad. And She also has this thing in the book where she says, when she makes a decision, she says, I'm not going to do that anymore. And then she doesn't. So she said, you know what? I'm not going to put up with my husband anymore. I'm not going to do that anymore. I divorced him, never looked back. And she'll do it constantly. I'm not going to do that anymore. I kind of loved it. I know. Um, I don't know if it would work for me. No, there's no way. (laughs) Mine would be like, I'm not going to do that anymore. Oops, I did it. Damn it. Fuck. (laughs) I'm not going to do that. Nope. Just did it again. I'm not going to do that anymore, except this one time because I deserve it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I've been good. <laughs> then Tippy gets tired. She's tired of writing this memoir and she really rolls through the rest of her life wraps up in like 11 pages. Yes. She marries a man named Lewis and he has a great line. She said they stay by each other's side at a party. And after several spellbinding hours, he glanced at his watch and said, I'm going back to Los Angeles. Are you coming with me? And she said, yes. And then later she said, his daughter and I were alone in the car one day on our way to do some shopping. When out of nowhere, she said, don't marry my dad. I didn't ask why. I didn't ask her what she meant. I chose to pretend she hadn't said a thing and quickly changed the subject. Tippy, ask. Tippy. Ask some questions. Also, can you imagine being that child? No. Who, who is like, I'm going to try and save this lady from my dad. And the lady ignored me and pretended I didn't speak. It's really weird because that kid went out on a limb. And by the way, as we learn, you know, two paragraphs later, that kid was correct. Yes. And basically he was sober for eight years of their marriage. And then the last one was not, by the way, we don't get a word about this marriage. No, there is more about every single lion in this book than there is about her eight years of marriage to Louis (laughs) or Louis, whatever his name is. No, nine years. I mean, I know more about Cherry's the lion yeah. and like how she felt and thought and what her mornings were like <laughs> than I know about this man. And um, she said, I didn't just send him to rehab three times. I went with him to rehab three times to be supportive because I really, really wanted him to beat that demon in him so I could go on living with the man I married. I loved so much. Aww. The demon won. And then she said, one day I said, I'm not going to do that anymore. And I divorced him. Oh, Tippy. And then she says, thank you, Peter, Peter Griffith, for Melanie. Thank you again, Noelle Knoll, for Shambhala. (laughs) Thank you again, Lewis, for eight of the best years of my life. Eight out of nine is better than none. And you know what? We don't have to thank people for things when they are abusive and horrible. I was going to say, none of those were great is what I learned from your book. So, Yeah, and you didn't have to do like... I get technically like a child coming out of a thing, but like, that's just not how you have to look at it. You don't have to say like, I had to be abused by like Noel Noel for me to learn that I love big cats. 
Right. You know, like, I just don't, I bet you could have found it another way. I know. But you wonder, like, how much of this was formed through that interaction with Hitchcock? Because that is, it does seem like she learned how she was supposed to survive. And even to your point about the little girl telling her and her just ignoring it, that's kind of what she did with Hitchcock early on, too, when he would, like, the creepy screen test thing. She just didn't say anything and was like, it'll go away. And it does kind of seem like she continues that. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I mean, the end of the book is so funny. Antonio Banderas gets one sentence. (laughs) Melanie and her new husband, Antonio. (laughs) Like, that's it. And um, her grandchild, Stella. I mean, it's just, it's going by so fast. Then she's like, hey, remember that veterinarian at the beginning of the book? I got engaged to him. Um, And she was like, and I loved him until I wrote an impassioned letter to lawmakers in Sacramento talking about the bill she was proposing to stop people from being able to declaw lions Mm -hmm. because it's a horrible practice. And the veterinarian went behind her back and wrote a counter letter. What a dick. What a dick. And I don't want this to be funny, but like, this is so, it's not funny, but it's like, oh my God. It's a little funny though. It's a little like, she's like, she literally says it's the worst thing any man has ever done to me. Any man has ever done to her is write a letter. I said, I've read worse in your own book, but okay. And then she's like, and the marriage is over. Can you believe you wrote that letter? And I was like, (laughs) oh my God. But she really loves these lions. She does. And and then at the end of the book, she's like, by the way, I have chronic pain and never ending headaches and not a single person can fix them. And I fight my way through perpetual exhaustion and depression. I don't have time for them. And I refuse to live like that. And I, you know what? That's actually not, that's not the antidote to either of those. Like, you know what I mean? No, it's like, you want to be like, no, Tippy, like you don't have to. Yeah. She's like, I know I'll find my answer one day. And then the book ends with her taking you through a day of her life where she lives at Shambhala. She goes and pets the cats. She feeds them. She meditates and walks with her elephants and animals. She's alone. She's happy about it. She's like, I never want to be with another man again. Thank God. Truly. And she said, I want you to know that by buying this book, you've made a difference too, since the proceeds will be put to great use by the Roar Foundation. Thank you again for that. I wish you love and health and fearlessness and a kind, forgiving heart. And however it manifests itself, your own Shambhala. I mean, Uh, a very sweet ending. Yeah. There are two names towards the end of this book that I don't know if you noticed. Um, Tell me. One is a very casual mention of how Michael Jackson didn't care about his tigers. Um, Oh, a very pointed shade. (laughs) Yes. She says that they took in some tigers for Michael Jackson, and then she's like, and he never even called them. (laughs) It's like, well. And never came to visit them. And one was called, one was called the name of his song. Thriller. One was called Thriller. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the shade at Michael Jackson for uh, abandoning Mm -hmm. his tigers. Um, Mm -hmm. And then the other one, did you notice who was thanked in the special thanks celebrity friends section a little donald trump a little donald trump (laughs) and we just want to remind you here ladies and gentlemen that the book was published in 2016 so this isn't pre this is middle this is middle of trumpness what what was that well i want to say i love her acknowledgments for the fact that she categorizes it by family and list names (laughs) First loves, thanks them. Husbands, just a category for husbands. <laughs> Celebrity friends, Antonio Banderas. Okay, so that's actually your son-in-law. Yeah. Don Johnson. Okay, that's y- your daughter's former abuser. 
Um, then she's like, uh, yeah, Siegfried and Roy. Okay, for obvious reasons. <laughs> for tiger-related reasons, yes. Lily Tomlin, love that. Sienna Miller, what? Okay. Donald Trump, no, what are you doing? Lonnie Anderson, love that. And Linda Blair, who was in The Exorcist. Sure. What a, I mean, what a wild... Yeah, what a cabinet of curiosities happening there in the, like... <laughs> oh, and then she ends the acknowledgments with this great sentence. To anyone I might have forgotten while writing this list, please note it will haunt me for the rest of my life. And remember, I'm 86. <laughs> I said I loved that. Um, yeah, I, why is Donald Trump there? Why is he there? And you know what? I'm just giving it a quick... A quick Google we have just to. to see. Oh, so she's made an apology. Clearly, my comments about Donald Trump were edited and misrepresented in the media as a political endorsement. Oh, no. What did she say? Oh, my God. So in 2016, Tippy comes out in support of Trump, but then she says it's not political support. I just think he's great. Oh, no, 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 Tippy. Man, no, 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 she's no. got the worst picker for men. It's, I mean... Also, if this is the quote, I don't know how this could be taken out of context and not political. What I'm seeing- Oh God, give it to me. I mean, I, listen, I've not done enough to verify this, but what I'm seeing is elections are such a folly. I adore Trump. I hope he wins and think he would do a great job. Other Republicans might be against him. That's their problem. Wait, she also said other Republicans. So Tippy is a Republican. Yeah. Y'all say you can't take that out of context. Yeah, there's the, the context is within your own quote. I, Tippy being a secret Republican the whole time, I should have seen it coming I know. when I said this is white woman fuckery. And somehow, because usually it's liberals who are like, we have to save all the animals. I thought I just didn't see it. I didn't see it coming. <sighs> also, the one last my favorite story of the whole book, I saved it for the very end. And now it has Trump taint all over it which is that so she helps out with an organization throughout the book called food for the hungry and she visits with refugees and tries to help them and she visits with a bunch of vietnam women who love her nails so much and they think they're so cute that she brings her manicurist dusty to teach them how to do nails and how to do manicures and how to do this like cute little art also, part of the program is making sure women get skills and jobs and like find their place in America. So it's part of that. And when she says the large like Vietnamese like nail salon industry came from Tippy like bringing her personal manicurist to train them on nails, which I tried looking it up. It's really just Tippy's account of this, but it. I thought it was beautiful when I read it, and now I'm nervous. No, now I'm nervous I, with our new lens. Do you know what? I looked it up, too, because I was also wondering about it, and it does seem like this is acknowledged as like a, yeah. a potential, obviously, it's probably not the only origin of this, but that it was yeah. kind of like a starting place for the Vietnamese manicure, like billion-dollar empire that they obviously were able to like take this skill and just take it to a whole entire new level yeah and also how like communities build and share skill sets particularly in america's capitalist system when you are brought in as a refugee yeah. like with nothing because there's also that great donut documentary about how this cambodian man like worked at a donut shop and worked his way up to buy it and now like most of la's donut shops are owned by cambodian families oh i didn't because know about he that just kept bringing in people yeah and so I, it was a similar par parallel, but I loved that nail story from her. Yeah. Um, 
She yeah. she had one other mention of her manicurist Dusty as well, which amazing name for Tippy Hedren's manicurist. Um, yeah. It, She's talking about how she brought her cheetah with her to a manicure at one point, I think. And she's like, that's right. I'm paraphrasing, but she's like, oh, it was everything Dusty could do not to just slip up and and give the cheetah a manicure, too. And I was like, was it? Yeah. And also, like, this is when you think of, like, don't declaw them. I'm bringing them to my manicure. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Oh, Oh, boy. Well, it's time we do the book deal test. Three questions. First question is, was the author vulnerable in the sharing of their truth? You know, I was prepared to say yes. However, I feel like you've given me another lens through which to view this book where I I think she could have been more truthful. Um, yeah. I think she kind of that paragraph she said, we're like in my generation, like we were told not to talk about this. I think in that context, yes. But in a 2016 context, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Second question. Was it entertaining to read? Yes. Yes. It's got lions biting people's heads. Yeah. I'm going to say everything but the lion chapters, which are a lot of them. But by (laughs) the ninth mauling, I was like, I do not need the details. Honestly, go back to your childhood, Tippy. Like, how are we getting more about the lions? But she loves them. They really are her best friends. So I'm a yes and no on that one. Final question. Did reading this book elevate your life in any way? Yeah. Yes, I think so. I mean, I I love movies, obviously. I love learning about the behind the scenes and how they're made. Maybe not so much the roar and lion sections because those are just bonkers. But the stuff about the birds really is fascinating. And of those two movies, I loved learning more about the birds and the development of it. Um, I want to look into more Hitchcock movies because I am sure there's more, more monstrous stuff. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed it. I, I like learning about this, the ins and outs of old Hollywood. Yeah. It's so funny because I still really like love her. I have weird, like, yeah. I have a feeling she would come to Thanksgiving and be like, Donald Trump is great. And I'd be like, Tippy, <laughs> you know, as opposed to like Tippy, you know, I would start it off nicer. I like, I, I feel like she's like, <laughs> like my kooky sweet grandma. However, that is also, I think the lesson I'm learning, which is just like, you know, it's so nice to like be forgiving and be sweet and brush it off and keep going and endure. But in this book, you see how she teaches that to Melanie and Dakota yeah. and how like being a fun, nice lady can like be passed on in a way that maybe it's not worthwhile to to find sweetness in things you don't have to find sweetness in. Yeah. Like we don't have to thank Alfred Hitchcock. We just don't. Yeah. You know, that's such I, a good like, point. I mean, it, yeah. it really. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Um, Lizzie, thank you so much for coming on. Will you tell people where they can find you and follow you and support your guys' work? Yes, of course. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a blast. I am obviously also a fan of your podcast as well. You can find What Went Wrong wherever you listen to podcasts. Just look up What Went Wrong. Uh, you can also follow us on Instagram at What Went Wrong Pod. And you can also email us at What Went Wrong Pod at gmail.com if you feel like it. Whatever you want. Yeah, they take suggestions. Also, the way you guys respond to reviews. <laughs> I, I want to do it. I haven't. I've never, but I love it. It's very fun. Thank you. It's mostly Chris. Okay. I just sit silently because I can't. <laughs> yeah. You, the, the, the podcast producer knew is like Chris, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I love it. I love what he does. Thank you so much for being here. And um, I can't wait to listen to another episode of your podcast. So go record it. <laughs> Thank you.
That's all for this week's episode. If you love this podcast, if you want more of this podcast, go join us on Patreon. If you become a Patreon member, you get one bonus episode every month. You get an email every episode of photos that go with the episode. You get a newsletter of all the best DMs that I get that month where we like learn and recap things. You also get access to our lounge, which is a cookies only chat lounge where we chat about episodes and all kinds of things. There's also other tiers. So you can join for just a dollar a month or $5 a month. And then for higher level tiers, we do a live book club on Zoom once a month where we listen to the episode of the podcast and discuss that episode. So no reading required. That's patreon.com slash Chelsea DeMontez. And that is where we love your support. And that's also where the community is. A huge thank you to our producer, Kate Downey, our episode engineer, DJ. No, that's right. It's Marcus Hom, formerly known as DJ Bouncy House, assistant Jaron Padre and our executive producer, Jordan Mancata. Our team does so much to make this podcast happen. And I just thank them endlessly. Also, a big thank you to our product partners at Tenteo. Natalie's Juice, and Pattern Brands. They have given us and our guests so many great products. We are going to link each brand in the show notes, and you can find all of the products that I love on my Instagram highlights, where I am always on Instagram, at Chelsea Devantes. And I'll see you there or for another episode soon.